Nehemiah chapter 13 is our text for uh, this afternoon. Um, pray with me. Let's ask, just quickly ask the Lord to bless the reading, preaching, hearing, applying of his word. Father, we do come and ask you who speak words of life. You who, when you speak, there is power, there is intention, there is purpose, and there is assurance that you will accomplish what your words desire and intend. So do that with us, Lord. Open wide our hearts, our ears to hear, our eyes to see spiritual things, truths that have originated in your heart and mind and from your mouth find its way into our hearts this afternoon for your glory in Jesus name amen amen last September we started a series of teaching through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, you happen to be here today and this will be the final teaching in that series. We're going to be closing up that teaching series. We're in Nehemiah chapter 13, the last chapter in the book of Nehemiah. We entitled it Church Building, God's Plan for the Future. The intent of the entire series, all working together, was to help all of us learn about being the people of God. And the hope was in that, that it would revive in your heart and my heart and all of our hearts together revive in our hearts a zeal for god's plan what he's building god's project what he's doing he's building his church he's building his people and that's really the building project that god is all about and so we wanted to tap into that and study and look at that and and learn what that means for us with the hopes that it would stir up a fresh vision and zeal in each of our hearts and lives to be a part of what God is doing. In the account, God took his people who were so far from him, they were in exile. They had resisted him. They had ignored him. They had resisted his messages from his prophets for years and years and finally were sent into exile But here in the books, in our study that we've been doing, it was God bringing them back, reestablishing them as the people of God, restored, restored into all the blessings and provisions uh, that they had given up and lost because of their wayward hearts. Over the weeks and months, we've learned several things about being the people of God. People of God are first and foremost worshipers. It was worship first. When he's reconstituting his people, regathering them, first thing they did, build the temple. We've got to worship. One characteristic, first and foremost, about the people of God, we worship the God who rescued us. We're worshipers. But also that God uses us to build what he's building. Every member, every one of us has a part to play, a role to play. We're part of his building team. We learn that the project is fraught with dangers and opposition, enemies who oppose. Nevertheless, that God is with us and he grants us success along the way. We've learned that the people of God are marked by contrition over their sin. And that true repentance comes because we're confident in God's steadfast love 
and his mercy. These are things that characterize the people of God and the people of God pray. The books are filled with prayers, going to God, talking to God. This is how God gets things done, both in our hearts and in the world that we live. And towards the end of our study, we began to get a glimpse of the city of God. The temple was restored, the city walls were built, and the city was beginning to get populated. And so we're beginning to see a bit of the end game, a bit of the picture of what God is building. A city filled with people, filled with joy, devotion, and trust in the Lord. So that this city, the people of God, can be this witness, this display of God's grace to the neighboring nations. And by God's grace, draw them in. But the book finishes in an odd and unexpected way. Chapter 12 would have been a nice ending. They finish the walls and they celebrate. They dedicate the walls in chapter 12, and it's a grand celebration. It would have been a wonderful ending for the book. Mission accomplished. The walls are built, closes with a celebration, but it does not end with chapter 12. There's chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a little bit different. Let's read it together. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zodak the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable." 
and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Exclamation point. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them, and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin." Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Okay. 
Are you ready? Chapter 13. What God restored was a foundation to build upon. And only by building on that foundation can we keep the house in order. The title of the message is Keep the House in Order. God provided the foundations to build upon. He calls us from there to build on those foundations, to build on that foundation, and keep his house in order. First point, the foundations that God laid. Throughout our study, throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, there were two major events that took place, the building, rebuilding of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. In Ezra, the temple was rebuilt. Worship was the one distinguishing mark of the people of God. The people of God, these people, these Jewish people, okay, they were not better looking. They were not more good-natured. They were not more pious. They were not larger than other nations. In fact, we could make a biblical case that they were contrary to all of those categories. They were called by God, rescued by God, established by God, and so they worshiped God. That's what made them the people of God. Nothing more, nothing less. They were worshipers. And so for the temple to be rebuilt was significant. The temple was the focal point of their worship. That was their identity. To lose the temple was to lose their identity as God's people. I could not fathom being God's people without the temple. Everything about their worship took place in and through and about that temple that God had given to them. God was restoring them and used Ezra to rebuild the temple. The temple was now up and running, and the people of God could be, once again, the people of God because they could worship. They could worship in the temple. We get through the book of Ezra. We get into the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's task is to rebuild the city, to rebuild the walls around the city. The temple was at the center of Jerusalem, sometimes called the city of God. It was the place, the city of Jerusalem was the place for the people of God to live in. It was a place of security. It was a place of provision. It was a place for the temple. This was their city. It was God's city. The people of God had a place to live. They had a temple to worship and a place to live in. These were the foundations that God had laid and established. These foundations were really just shadows of the real foundation that was yet to come. They were shadows of Christ, and Christ is the fulfillment of these, the truth of these, and Christ is the foundation that God has provided for us. Christ is the temple. The temple is Christ. The temple has a gate, an entry point. Jesus is the door, that gate, that entry point into the presence of God. He's the sacrifice on the altar at the beginning of that temple as you come in where the sacrifices were made to atone for sin. He's the living water in the basin that was there to be washed and cleansed. He's the light. He's the light of the lampstand standing there to illuminate and give light to the world. He's the bread. 
As we celebrated in communion just today, that bread of life on that table with the loaves of showbread there, Christ is that the living bread for us. And when he laid down his life, that curtain separating in the temple, the Holy of Holies, was torn into opening up the way opening up the way into the very presence of God, that Ark of the Covenant, that new covenant right there with the mercy seat on top, that place where God's Spirit dwells, where the glory of God is, Christ makes a way for us to be able to enter in to God's very presence where he himself is the image and the glory of God. Christ is our place. We have a city to live in, not a location on a map, but a place. In the New Testament, it talks about being in Christ. What does that mean when you are in Christ? It means you have a place in him, a place of security, a place of provision. If you are in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. You have a place to live, a place of security. And so we say we are, we are in Christ, and that's where our hope and our security and our provision comes from. We have all we need so long as we are in Christ. God has laid these foundations for the people of God. These are the foundations that we build upon. Christ has come. He is the foundation. We build on who he is and what he has done. Foundations are not the building. They're what you put the building on. And if you have a good foundation, you build the building on top of it. And that's God's building project. The foundation is laid. Christ is laid down. And so we build Living stones, each one of us together, the structure, the structure of God, the church of God gets built on that foundation. Point number two, building on the foundation. Chapter 12 was a nice mission accomplished chapter in the book, dedicating the walls with a great celebration. The chapter ends, the section ends with, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Celebrating a mission accomplished but it was a foundation to be built on. There's more to be done. Chapter 13 shows us the unfinished work. There's more to be done. The story doesn't end in chapter 12. It's ongoing. It shows us the unfinished work. Both Testaments, old and new, actually end in a similar way with this unfinished work. Now, we've said Nehemiah is actually kind of the last book in the storyline of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament that you have is not really laid out entirely chronologically. And so this, this narrative, this story, this historical account of what's going on in Ezra and Nehemiah is actually the end of the storyline in the Old Testament. So the chapter we read, as odd and as strange as it might sound, is the end of the Old Testament. That's how the story ends. Nehemiah pulling out people's hair and beating them and chasing them. The Old Testament ends with unfinished business. More to do. Foundation laid, work to be done, things to be built. The New Testament as well ends in a similar way. 
New Testament, a little bit more chronological than the old, but not entirely. But the last book of Revelation really goes to the end. And while much of the book of Revelation actually shoots out into the future, the beginning of the book is really sort of the tail end of the historical New Testament church. And it begins with letters to all these existing New Testament churches. And what are in these letters? Well, several commendations. You're doing good at this. This I see you're excelling in this This is good. But there's also a list of uh, you're really not cutting it here. And this is not so good. And this needs to be adjusted. And you're not doing this. And this has to be corrected. So we have both Old and New Testaments laying out first and foremost all these grand, great, magnificent foundations that God begins, that lays down, but it leaves us with this ongoing, unfinished story of work to be done, more building to take place, more sin to overcome in our hearts, in our lives, more gathering to take place, more encouragement, more strengthening, more adjustment. Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem and found the people of God in a state of several compromises. So Nehemiah comes, he's sent by the king. The king says, I'll let you go. How long are you going to be? He gave him a time. He goes, he builds the wall, he finishes the wall, he goes back to the king. Then at an appointed time, he says, King, I'd like to take another leave of absence. And he goes back down to Jerusalem. And this is him showing up in Jerusalem again. And now after the walls have been built and the grand celebration and everything looked like mission accomplished, we're all in great shape. Everything is good. God is good. He shows up sometime later. We don't know how long, maybe some years later, maybe a dozen years later. And he finds that the people of God had drifted yet again. And he lists off a series of compromises that have crept in to the people of God. And here we have in chapter 13, Nehemiah coming back and seeing, observing, identifying, responding to these compromises. The house was quickly out of order. But the mission, the assignment, is when God establishes the foundation, it's our job to keep the house in order. And he comes back and finds the house out of order. Four little vignettes that we've read through about ways the house was filled with compromise and the house of the people of God were out of order. You know the house is out of order when first... When people are big and God is small. Title of a book by Ed Waltz dealing with the sin of men pleasing and the fear of man. When people are big and God is small. The first thing in this chapter that Nehemiah discovered was that there was this man named Tobiah who was big and God was small. Tobiah We've come across in the previous weeks, the previous study, he was one of a team of influential opposers to the work of God. He was in a short list. He was in the top three people that were opposing the work of God. He was labeled an enemy of the things of God. And yet, he was sort of infiltrated into the life of the people of God. He married in 
to the Jewish life. His son married in. He was closely connected. There were business contracts made. There were oaths being made with Tobiah and God's people. And so Nehemiah goes away and comes back and finds out that one of the priests who was in charge of all the rooms, the storerooms in the temple, actually rented out one of the rooms to Tobiah. And in one of the times that they're reading God's word, they come across in Deuteronomy where it says, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. That's in Deuteronomy 23. And here's Tobiah renting a little apartment, setting up his second home inside the temple. Derek Kittner writes about this. Is this true to the Old Testament style? The prohibition is stark and unqualified to make the most powerful impact. But the reader knows that elsewhere there are balancing considerations. It is the Ammonite or Moabite in his native capacity as the embodiment of Israel's inveterate enemy and corrupter who is in view. But let him come as a convert like Ruth, the Moabitess, and he will be entitled to a very different reception. The restrictions come strong, stark, unqualified. This cannot be. The people read this. They hear this being read out loud. Nehemiah shows up on his return trip and finds Tobiah in the temple. Tobiah is the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. And it was a lack of the fear of the Lord, especially with Eliashib, the priest, who allowed Tobiah into the temple courts. Eliashib was given to the sin of fear of man and men-pleasing. But those forces controlled his heart only because of an absence of the fear of the Lord in his heart. Had he looked to the foundations, had he thought about what was really going on, had he considered what God had done, the fear of the Lord would have been operating in his heart. Had he looked to the foundations, powerful and in complete control of kings was God. God orchestrated this whole return, everything, the king, the servants, the money of the king, the bandits and criminals along the way. He stayed. The accomplishments in the midst of all the opposition, it was the Lord that accomplished all these things. Had he looked to these foundations, he would have left with only one question, who is Tobiah? That I would even consider contradicting the Lord. Who is Tobiah? No, Tobiah was influential, powerful, part of the family. Had the priest been closely tied to these foundations, thinking clearly about what God has done, who is Tobiah? Against the Lord? Nobody. Nothing. 
Friends, we all deal, all of us, we all deal with the fear of man and men pleasing. We all in varying degrees struggle with these forces in our heart. We, we love to please people. We're afraid of what others might do to us, what they might think of us. The fear of the Lord is the one antidote. And staying closely aware, closely tied to the foundations that God has given is really the, the only way you're going to win. What's going to win the day? The fear of man, the desire to please others, or the fear of the Lord? When we're tied closely to the foundations of what God has provided, all that God has done in Christ, who Christ is, what he's done, would always leave us saying, who is this person? Who are they really? Why would I succumb to wanting to please them more than the Lord? Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, when you're in the midst and drowning in the fear of man or desire to please man, and you ask the question, what can man do to me? I don't doubt you've got a long list of things of what man can do to you. Sure you do. Yes, many bad things can happen, and people can hurt you. Destroy your reputation. Make your life hard. Oh, there's a, there is a list of things that you could put and answer. What makes the difference? It's the fear of the Lord. It's not what they can do. It's what the Lord has done. Look at what the Lord has done. If the Lord has done that, now my perspective is different. When I look to the foundations, my heart has changed. Oh, Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Again, who can be against you? Make your list. There is a list. Of course there's a list. But the question is drawing attention to the contrast. If the Lord is for you, who are these people that are against you? They are nobody. They amount to nothing. We have the God that turns the heart of kings, who empties out the king's treasury and hands it to God's people and says, go make a journey, who tells all the bandits and criminals, stay by the side because my people are coming through. You won't be robbing anybody today. That's the Lord. That's who's on our side. And so when our hearts tremble, and what others might do, what others might say, what others might think. Where's the antidote? Where, where's the solution? Where, what's the medicine there? Ah, look at the Lord. Look who the Lord is, who is on our side, who's with us. What can man do to me? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The remedy is not so much stop being afraid of what other people think about you. Stop being so afraid of what other people might do to you. That The remedy is in looking to the Lord and who he is and what he's done. And then they fade. They fade to nothing. Because there's no threat or force that can compare 
with the power and the grace of God in our lives. Secondly, the house is out of order when money becomes our own instead of God's. Next thing on the list, people stop giving. They stop bringing their tithes in to the temple. The storehouses were empty. The Levites, the singers, the temple workers were not getting paid. They had to flee to their fields. They had to go get part-time jobs. They had to go find other work. They were not getting the support that God had orchestrated in his economic plan for his people because people stopped giving. The entire temple system was breaking down. The maintaining of worship was not taking place because the instruction to give to the storehouse was not being followed. There is a major presupposition in God's economic plan and in the hearts and lives of God's people It is this, everything belongs to the Lord. Everything you and I have is the Lord's, and he distributes as he wills, and he entrusts those things, that money, to us as stewards. So here's a characteristic of the people of God. We recognize that we are stewards not owners what you have is not yours it is yours to steward it is the lord's that he's entrusted to you to steward he's given it to you you're in, it's mine you're in charge of it now that's how the people of god see and understand their finances these people stopped giving and short-circuited God's economy and the worship plan here. Had they thought about the foundations that God has laid, this would never have happened. If they thought about where they had come from and all what God has done, they had lost everything. They had nothing. They were just living in exile. They were not their own people. They were not living in their own homes. They didn't own anything. They were living in Persia. Prior to that, Babylon. They were in exile. They were servants. They were slaves. They were subject to another governing authority. Nothing they had was their own. God begins to work and begins to restore them and draw them back bringing them back to their former homes and their place and their city and the temple and their fields, and it's all coming back together. It's all starting to look like normal life. But what was the compromise? What crept in? Oh, now it's ours. Now it's mine. Completely distorting the whole story of what was taking place. The Lord says, no, No, I'm entrusting this to you. I took it away from you once when you neglected me. Do you not understand? This is mine that I'm entrusting to you. I want you to steward it. And part of that stewardship involves you giving back a tenth 
of what I've given to you. It's maybe a little humorous when we think about giving something to a child and you hand them a box of cookies and you say, could I have one? And they say, no way. (laughs) No, they're mine. And you say, well, this is a little funny. Obviously, you're not clear on what's going on here. I just handed you a box of cookies. And now I'm, I say I'm asking you. I'm really kind of inviting you to do what's right. And I would like you to give me a cookie back. But it's just, it's stuck in their head. No, no, because they're mine. These are mine. And I will decide whether I give one back to you or not. And I say, no. You get a little picture of from God's perspective what's going on here as he's playing out his plan with his people and providing all this for him. So here's just simple instruction. I'll give you everything you need, and I want you to give a portion back. Because that's how I want the temple to operate. I want the priest to function with that. I want the Levites to get paid because I want those singers singing all the time. I want those sacrifices all the time. I want those lamps lit. I want fresh bread out there constantly. I I want this temple to function. And here's how it's going to function. Out of all that I've given you, just give some of it back. People of God are generous people. It's one of the characteristics of being a part of the people of God. We are generous and joyfully generous because we recognize we're stewards, not owners, that everything has been given to us. And and with that comes an absence of fear of running out, of losing, of coming up short. God has provided it all. The 100% came from his hand. If he can provide the 100%, there's confidence, there's hope. We know the character of our God. We will not lack. But when people stop giving, and we see this not uncommon, something is off. Something's going on in the heart. When the giving stops, something in God's house is out of order. And Nehemiah comes to bring it back to order. Third vignette, you know the house is out of order when we refuse to rest. Nehemiah found people breaking the Sabbath. This was the law. You cannot work one day out of seven. You stop working. You do not work on the Sabbath. They would take one day out of seven No business could be done. Business went on like any other day with these people that were compromising, treading the wine presses, bringing in heaps of grain, loading up donkeys, buying and selling. Whatever was going on, we need to make a few extra bucks. We need to get ahead. We need to pay off some debts. We'd like to buy some more land. We'd like to increase our savings. Somehow, whatever was going on, in their hearts and minds, was blinding them to another important characteristic of the people of God. 
they can rest because God provides. And God insists on this taking a break day. He calls the Sabbath to display, to prove, to show we trust the Lord. He'll provide. I don't have to work 24-7. I don't have to strive. I don't have to work all the time. I can take a break. Mark Buchanan, the rest of God. Let me read you a little bit. I became a Sabbath keeper the hard way. Either that or die. Not die literally, at least. I don't think so, but die in other ways. It happened subtly over time, but I noticed at some point that the harder I worked, the less I accomplished. I was often a world gig of motion. My days were intricately fitted together like the old game of mousetrap, every piece precariously connected to every other, the whole thing needing to work together for it to work at all. But there was little joy and stunted fruit. To justify myself, I'd tell others I was gripped by a magnificent obsession. I was purpose-driven, I said, or words like that. It may have begun that way. It wasn't that way any longer. Often I was just obsessed, merely driven, no magnificence or purposefulness about it. I once went 40 days, an ominously biblical number, without taking a single day off. And I was proud of it. But things weren't right. Though my work often consumed me, I was losing my pleasure in it, and for that matter, in many other things beside, and losing, too, my effectiveness in it. And here's a secret. For all my busyness, I was increasingly slothful. I could while away hours at a time in a masquerade of working, a pantomime of toil, fiddling about on the computer, leafing through old magazines, chatting up people in the hallways. But I was squandering time, not redeeming it. And whenever I stepped out for a vacation, I did just that, vacated, evacuated, spilled myself empty. I folded in on myself like a tent suddenly bereft of stakes and ropes and poles, clapped hard by the wind. The air went out of me. The inmost places suffered most. I was losing perspective. Fissures in my character worked themselves here and there into cracks. Some widened into ruptures. I grew easily irritable, paranoid, bitter, self-righteous, gloomy. On he goes with his story. Okay, you restless folks, I've got two books for you. Two free books. If you're unable to rest, if you're not walking in the rest of God, you need to learn something about God's Sabbath He's designed a healthy lifestyle for us to take a break. And being able to take that break is an expression of our trust in his provision. We've been tracking the story of these people of God and seeing all that God has done, all that God has provided. It is almost humorous to think of these people frantically feeling like they have to work 24-7 to make ends meet after all God has done to miraculously get them to this place. Can you imagine the, 
absurd concept that they are going to manage their success and move themselves forward when everything we've been reading and seeing is that God has been wonderfully and wisely in control of all things. God provides rest for his people. And friends, our rest is found in Christ. God's people are not frantic, worried, unable to rest because we enter into his rest. As Hebrews chapter 4 speaks about, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Do you see what he's doing? Physical labor one day out of seven, he pairs with your labor of good works to earn your salvation. And do you see the rest we have in Christ? Because Christ has accomplished the work. You cannot earn it yourself. You will not be able to buckle down and do some good deeds and buy up some merit with God. It can only be given to you free of charge by God's grace. You cannot work for it. How did God build that theological picture over hundreds and thousands of years by saying, every Sabbath, you may not so much as pick up a stick. You must rest because you trust. So don't work and worship and be okay. Fourth one, you know the house is out of order when our homes are not God-centered. Okay, we're back again to this inner marriage thing, this thing that rubs us the wrong way, this interracial marrying with pagan people surrounding Jerusalem. This time, Nehemiah comes back and he finds again this inner marriage going on but he gets to the heart of it in a different way this time. Although the heart is always, you marry somebody outside the faith and that person pulls you away from the faith. Now, Nehemiah puts his finger down on the children, the offspring. Here's what I see happening. You're going against what God has prescribed marrying outside the faith. And now, what do I see? Half the children don't even know the language. They can't speak Hebrew. In other words, when we gather together and somebody opens up the Torah and begins to read, half the children will not understand what's being read. So Nehemiah sees this taking place, and he's saying, Okay, we're, we're half losing the next generation already because you're not following the instructions that the Lord has given. God works in generations. This is a fairly new concept for me as I'm getting later in life and having to come to terms with this when I was 
younger, all I could think about what, was what God was doing in my life and what was going to get accomplished in my lifetime and what I will accomplish by God's grace, by God's grace. Throw that in there because it really wasn't about me, but it kind of is about me. And so I'm thinking about what is my life going to be comprised of for the Lord. And I'm reading this story and I'm realizing, you know, these people were in exile. It was the forefathers. It was generations before that really messed up. And many subsequent generations were, were paying the price and, and living in the consequences of the neglect of grandparents and great-grandparents. On the other side of that coin, the, the promises made to the patriarchs, that's what was being drawn on to come back and rescue as well. I see and I learn in this that God is, is just working across generations. He's, he's apparently not viewing time the way I do. I have one life to live. I've got so many years. I'm going to accomplish what I'm going to accomplish in my lifetime. And now I've got five adult children and I've got grandchildren. And now it's just looking a little different. And I'm beginning to see, I trust, things a little bit more Biblically, God is working in generations. And so this point becomes particularly important. This hope and this promise to have children, raise children in the Lord. Establishing God-centered homes is a major part of fulfilling God's plan in his building project for the future. We added that little part for the future, God's plan for the future. We add that into the subtitle of the series because I knew about chapter 13 and I knew this was going to end in an odd way of an unfinished work. God is looking into the future and he's looking down in this particular time and finding out, oh, you folks are getting married for the wrong reason or at least you're neglecting a very important reason for getting married. Godly offspring, next generation. Now, let me make a little qualifier here. If what you just heard from me makes it sound like all that God really wants is for you to have some sterile, unemotional relationship, just find somebody and have lots of babies and you'll be fulfilling the great commission. Please don't hear that. Don't perceive that. In reality, the Bible has so much to say about romantic love and builds on this concept of, of a man and a woman somewhat infatuated with each other and, and actually uses this as a display for the gospel. So please don't hear when I say, okay, the, one of the major points and purposes of, of marriage, God has designed to be godly offspring. Please don't hear that to be sort of like this sort of, what we might use the phrase, puritanical, stoic, okay, just get married and have babies because that's all God wants. That's all, that is not his entire design for marriage. But you see what was happening in here? These, these people were marrying 
for some alternative reason without this concept of God in their mind. Whether it was physical attraction alone, whether it was a social contract, whether it was a business arrangement, all things were probably likely happening, which was why these marriages were, being, were, were taking place. And Nehemiah comes to put a stop to it, to correct it. Now, another point I'd like to just qualify because I know sometimes Christians find themselves in marriages with unbelievers. Whatever the circumstances might, might be, and I just, I just I want you to hear and know that the New Testament actually addresses this in a very helpful and, and wonderful way. If you find yourself married to a non-Christian, the clear and helpful instructions it's, it's, you, you don't have to leave them. It's not better to leave them necessarily. Although if the unbelieving spouse desires to leave, you can be free. But you don't have to feel like, oh, now somehow I'm a bad Christian, second-class citizen. Not at all. The, the, the scriptures address this clearly and give us hope and instruction. So don't lose heart. Okay, these four vignettes that we see Nehemiah coming to. The people of God fear God more than man. They're generous because they're stewards and not owners. We live and work at rest because of what God has accomplished. And our homes and our marriages are first and foremost about God and not ourselves. Foundation has been laid. And the foundations that God has laid help us combat compromise in these areas and this is the work you and i ought to be giving ourselves to third point how to finish well how to finish well how does nehemiah finish okay we have chapter 12 mission accomplished the wall is built great celebration then we have this strange chapter number 13 telling us about all the compromises and difficulties and i'm sure you noticed nehemiah has some unusually strong responses to these compromises unusually strong I, I don't doubt if you weren't snickering or laughing you were saying that really rubs my sensibilities the wrong way the way he was responding okay let me review for you in case you forgot i was very angry and i threw all the household furniture of tobiah out of the chamber okay his clothes his suitcase his chairs his furniture out in the ditch he threw them out. You could see stuff flying out of the temple. That was Nehemiah tossing his possessions out. When people stopped giving, I confronted the officials. Why is the house of God forsaken? And then he appointed and restored, and people began to give again. The Sabbath being violated. I confronted them. I said, what's this evil that you've been doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Then I commanded, I posted people at the doors made sure they would not open the doors on the Sabbath, keep them closed. And then I saw them camping outside, thinking that I was going to give in. And I said to them, if you're there again next week, I'm going to lay hands on you. In other words, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to come out there, I'm going to beat you if you show up again next Sabbath day. Oh, and then, of course, with the intermarriage, my personal favorite here, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Why is that my favorite? I don't know. I made them 
take an oath. In the name of God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for yourselves. Okay, friends, there's a point to be had, not necessarily a practice to follow. Okay, how Nehemiah responded practically is not prescriptive for us to follow. Okay, this is not your permission to vent and let out all your anger on that so-and-so and go and beat them and pull out their hair. Okay, it's not okay. And it's not what the scripture is teaching us. In fact, when it comes to church discipline, when it comes to the training, when it comes to helping each other put away sin, move on, let sin go behind us, repent, turn, act in righteous ways that please the Lord. The New Testament gives us all kinds of instructions and many tools to help each other confront and deal with sin. There's encouragement, there's exhortation, there's correction, there's rebuke, even strong rebuke, and sometimes even public rebuke. And ultimately, there is excommunication of putting somebody out of the church who refuses to respond and walk away from their sin. So Nehemiah's methods are not prescriptive for us. But friends, I think they do teach us something. I think there's something for us to learn. Even though I read those statements and you're sitting there and you're thinking, that's really, okay, I know that's not right. I can feel it in my bones. We should not go around. And you pastors should not be taking people out back and beating them and pulling their hair out. This is not right. But I wonder, in reading it, if we have to be honest and ask ourselves if it reveals something and shows something in our own hearts. Maybe we could ask ourselves, are we too okay with sin? Are we too comfortable with compromise? Have we settled in to a kind of, well, we all sin. And we'll never be perfect until the Lord comes anyway. So I guess we should just all kind of, shouldn't we just be okay with it? Has the reality of Sin lost its edge on our souls and on our hearts. Does Nehemiah just look like some kind of out of control freak to us? Or can we see a godly man filled with indignation over what displeases God? What desecrates his temple? what ultimately would destroy the people of God, what would mar and cripple God's plan if these things were not dealt with and responded to and repented of and turned from? Is it possible? Could we just let the Scripture be our mirror? Could we honestly ask ourselves, how does that land on your soul? Besides recognizing, okay, let's not do all those things, but if the New Testament does give us some instruction, should we not take sin seriously? And should we not still have a sense of right 
indignation, a right sense of anger. This, this is killing you. This is destroying us. This is dividing the church. This is ruining our future. This is harming the expression of God's grace. This is ruining our testimony to the world. Everything about God's plan is being mucked up by these compromises. And so while we should not do specifically what Nehemiah did, I wonder if we should be seeking the Lord to have the heart of Nehemiah when it comes to what is contrary to God, his people, and his plan. Nehemiah prays. After restoring giving to the temple, remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds. My goodness. Wow, I'm so sorry. I was having such a good time. <laughs> I had no idea. Forgive me. But I need to finish. Remember me, O God. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God. Spare me. And the book closes with this summary. Remember me, O oh God, for good. Think about Nehemiah. If I were Nehemiah, how would I want to be remembered? I built the wall. I'm the wall builder. I'm the great administrator, great leader. People will be learning leadership lessons from me for generations because I led God's people and I built the wall. I accomplished the mission God gave me and we celebrated. None of that. Kidner writes, this man from the imperial court brought no worldly values with him. I cleansed, I established, I provided. Makes a far less brilliant epitaph than Caesar's boast. I came, I saw, I conquered. But Nehemiah's work was the making of his people. He wanted to be known for one thing. I worked for the purity of God's people. I gave myself to uphold God's ways. I confronted sin when I saw it. I encouraged God's people to live in ways that are pleasing to the Lord. It was not what I built. It was not that I had a plaque on the wall with my name on it. Here's how I want to be remembered. Oh, Lord, remember me. Lord, you remember me. Remember me for this. Never mind the wall. Remember me for what I did for your people. I'm here as your representative to make sure the house is kept in order. Okay, worship team, come on up. Nehemiah had all the makings of greatness in the eyes of the world. But in the end, that's not where he leaves us. It's not where chapter 13 leaves us. Kidner again, to hear God's well done is the most innocent and most cleansing of ambitions. Is that your ambition? finish your life be known for what you've done your accomplishments or to be known or to finish your life and hear those words from him whom you serve well done good and faithful servant let's stand together father in heaven be gracious for long sermons
Be kind. Still feed your people. Encourage our hearts, Lord, to live for you. Oh, I pray that the series envisioned our hearts and stirred up fresh zeal in our hearts, Lord, to build your project for your glory. Guard our hearts against compromise. Teach us your ways. Give us faith for the journey. In Jesus' name, amen.